me again. Our great God, speak now. We ask, um, continue to speak as you have through our singing in your presence, through the reminder of your son and his body broken for us. In every way, Lord, come now and meet with us. Give us ears to hear you. Holy Spirit, would you call? Would you call to souls for comfort and conviction, for salvation, for realization and hope? And to believers, for believers, would you call with new strength, new rest, new resolve? We love you, Lord. We give you this time. Once again, in Christ's name, amen. Thy mercy, my God, is the theme of my song, the joy of my heart and the boast of my tongue. Thy free grace alone, from the first to the last, hath won my affections and bound my soul fast. John Stalker wrote those words to the hymn, Thy Mercy, My God, in 1776, a good year for a number of things. Sandra McCracken, in recent days, in comparison, uh, wrote a new tune for the four stanzas of that hymn. She tells the story of the afternoon um, when she wrote that new tune, having uh, read these words and being moved by them. This is, uh, this is how she recounted the beginning of her day. This morning I was heavy with sleep when my double alarms went off at 6 o'clock and 6.08. I was slow moving to get out of bed, having been awake during the night, thinking about my kids and school, what they were doing there and how that was going, about my own work schedule, about the intersection of all of these life forces. And still, the sun came up again today. The faithful mercies of God, they come every morning. Whether I am bleary-eyed or bright, when the sun is hidden behind winter, overcast clouds, still this mercy, this morning, is new. Still the sun rises. Today his mercy is coming. I'm reminded as I pray those words with my kids in the back seat on the way to school, his mercy is already there. Without your sweet mercy, I could not live here. That's another line from the hymn, by the way. Mercy is God giving us what we need. When we don't deserve an ounce of goodness, we can't earn. It's a bold expectation appealing for mercy when I don't have anything measurable to contribute or to earn for myself. I can't bargain with a holy God. My appeal for grace is only and always Jesus. Well, that's our intro to where we are in Philippians chapter 3 this morning. Not in our own strength do we come. Not do our own merits we bring, but our only appeal, our only appeal is himself, the Lord Jesus. Paul has said here in Philippians for us to rejoice. And in the beginning of chapter 3, he gets explicit then about the spring of that rejoicing, about the source of joy for the believer. Rejoice in the Lord, chapter 3 begins, because he's the source. In our passage this morning, two great themes of the book of Philippians are going to come together. The first is a theme you know well, joy, rejoicing. It's uh, easy to find in the book. And then the second theme, which isn't nearly as cool, and probably one you wouldn't even notice otherwise, is the word group, but still a singular word stem in the original, to regard, or to consider, or to count. Um, 
Just recall uh, chapter 2, verse 3, where he says there to count value to others. Consider others as more important than yourselves, he says. How about uh, chapter 2, verse 6, speaking of the Lord Jesus, who did not count his godness as something to clutch or cling to himself, but instead he counted it as something to relinquish. Count, regard, consider has been used in a couple of poignant ways already in the book and will be several other times throughout. But the point of all of it is this, that word group of counting, regarding, considering, is going to happen three times in our passage today. And here's the point, we can only rejoice as we count. We have to learn to count. We have to go to Back to basics. If we're going to figure out how it is to rejoice in the Lord and not the temporary kind of passing circumstantial happiness rather than deep and abiding joy, the temporary kind of emotive happiness that the world could give rather than rejoicing in the Lord that he alone gives. That's why these two things come together here. If we count well, then we will be able to rejoice in the Lord well. Pick up with me and let's uh, read our passage for this morning, starting in uh, Philippians 3. I'm going to pick up there in the middle of verse 3 of chapter 3. He says, and we put no confidence in the flesh, verse 4, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is found in the law, which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. What Paul is doing for us here at this point then is he's telling us what it means to rejoice in the Lord, and he's Describing for us how is it that we pursue it. What does it mean to rejoice in the Lord? It means to have the right kind of confidence. First, in our passage this morning, it means to have the right kind of confidence. And that comes from learning when to count your gains as losses. Paul here is going to rehearse his superior merits of anyone who could stand before God and say, I have merit to claim that I have a standing before the eternal, holy, and all-wise, infinite God, I could have such confidence. And he's going to mention several reasons for that. As he rehearses those merits, he first mentions right there, verse 4, circumcision, actually 5. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I Far more. Circumcised on the eighth day, according to the law, at exactly the right time. Why is it that he mentions circumcision first? Well, because that was the badge of a true Hebrew. It was the sign 
of the covenant, that one was in covenant relationship with God. Under the old covenant, the sign of the covenant was circumcision because God decided that it would be the sign and he said this is the sign. And that is a whole teaching and reasoning and theology of itself. Paul mentions that first because it's the badge of belonging to God. And he said, I had that badge. But also he mentions it first because it's the source of contention due to the Judaizers who have come to Philippi. Remember uh, the end of verse 2? Beware of the false circumcision and the beginning of verse 3, for we are the true circumcision. Paul's point here is that his parents were not lax in their obedience. They took their little boy and on the eighth day made their way up to the temple to dedicate him to the Lord and to set him apart in covenant to God. That's part of what he can boast. This is where I came from. This is my background. And it was done right with regard to me. Stuff I couldn't even have controlled went great for me before I was in control of it. Paul's also saying he's not some Johnny-come-lately proselyte to Judaism, somebody who came along later on and having gone through all of the ceremonies, eventually may have been circumcised as an adult. No, he, on the eighth day, Paul had the honor of being a native-born Jew, and that's really where he's going to go next. As he mentions three more merits from his background, verse 5, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Israelite, Benjamite, Hebrew. What did it mean to be an Israelite? What, what is he saying there, boasting of? How does that speak of his merit? Well, I'll let him explain it to us himself with his own words. Uh, you can jot these down. I'll read them to you. But Romans 3, opening couple of verses, he tells us, then what advantage does the Jew have? He's just argued that all of us are sinners and all of us need a Savior. But even in the context of salvation being in Christ alone, Paul says this at the beginning of Romans 3, what advantage does the Jew have? Or what benefit then is circumcision? And then he answers it. Great in every respect. First of all, that we were entrusted with the oracles of God. I'm also going to read from uh, Romans chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. He adds more to the list of benefits. We are the Israelites, he says, Romans 9, 4 to whom belong the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the prophet and the promises and ours are the fathers from whom comes the Christ. That's a pretty good list there. Five or six or eight things if you put them all together that we won't have time for you, but you get the picture. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was the tribe that uh, stayed loyal to King David Benjamin, together with the tribe of Judah, stayed loyal to the Davidic king when Jeroboam rebelled against Rehoboam. Whether you remember those names or that scene or not, Benjamin was known as having sort of a special place as a tribe because of that. Also, Benjamin was uh, Jacob and Rachel's beloved son. He was doted over in some ways. Also from Benjamin came the very first king of all Israel. Question, anybody happen to remember that guy's name? Saul? Why might that be important? 
in Philippians 3. Maybe because the dude who's writing was named after that guy because he's from that tribe. Whether or not that was a good choice, I don't know, but regardless, that's the honor that he is speaking of here. Well, these opening four merits are due to his background and really nothing that he has accomplished with his own hands, but Paul now moves on to talk about his own achievements. He says there, the end of verse 5, As to the law, I was a Pharisee. This is the group in Israel that had the best knowledge of the Mosaic Code, the best training in the keeping. They were the ones who defined whether or not one was uh, in compliance or not with God's ordinances. So that was a Pharisee. We are the ones who taught everybody how to be godly. That's where I came from. As far as the law goes, as far as uh, anybody wants to boast that they've done it right, I'm the people. I'm, I'm of the people who tell people whether or not they did it right. This speaks of his diligent obedience, his scrupulous performance. But he's not done as to zeal. I was a persecutor of the church. He speaks of his background. You want to find someone radical for the glory of God? Look no further than me, Paul says. You want to find somebody totally sold out? You will not find anybody more devoted because I was willing to kill for the glory of my God. Be that mistaken as it was, it was some sense of the measure of his devotion. As he gathered the coats on the day when they stoned Stephen, the first martyr of the church. And as he went with, with directives in hand from the power of the Caesar to go seek out the Christians, terrorize them, punish them, torture them, jail them, or kill them, as whatever may need be. This was his zeal. And then lastly, he says of himself, and as to the righteousness which is found in the law, which is in the law, found blameless. I don't think Paul is claiming here sinlessness, not by any means. Um, there's a well-established tradition even under uh, the Old Covenant in Scripture. You can find in the Psalms, David and others at times coming to the Lord and saying, Lord, answer me according to my blamelessness. There, there are times where the psalmist will say, Lord, don't answer me because of me, but answer me in your righteousness. Answer me according to the covenant, acknowledging full grace. But in other times they would say, there is a relative righteousness, and in this situation, I am being unjustly accused. Lord, answer me according to my, my desire to walk close with you in my blamelessness. That's the idea here. Paul was not sinless. But Paul could probably say with a clear conscience, I have addressed every known sin that I could by virtue of the keeping of the law. When I sinned and broke the law, I used the reparations found in the law to be found right with God again so that I might walk in blamelessness. He was punctilious. I'm not even entirely sure what that word means, but I love that word. He was exacting. He was thorough in his observance and application of the law. You can't be better at being religious, at being good enough than Paul was. I do not think it is hyperbole when he says, 
if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. I think uh, that's neither arrogance nor hyperbole. It's probably very much appropriate. All of this opened doors for Paul, didn't they? All of these things made him respectable amongst the world of men. And all these things also were prone to make Paul self-sufficient, to make Paul arrogant and prideful, to make Paul live as though he had really no need for a savior. Oh, I get there are some dogs out there, some Gentiles. They'll need a savior for sure, but not so much me. Friend, if you don't yet know Christ, I think this passage this morning would be clear, and we, with pleading words, would want to be clear. It's very possible that your biggest obstacle to spending eternity with God is your successes. Your biggest hurdle to knowing Christ is your gains in life. Whether by virtue of background and heritage, the family into which you were born, the station in life, or maybe through your own efforts. If you are trying to prove your worth as you stand before God, then every gain you have may very well be an obstacle for you in coming to really know him. Every victory may well actually be a tragedy to your eternal self unless you learn how to count. Every achievement can be one more chain binding you to your own self-sufficiency. Look, I have built up and propped up myself before men in such a way that it's, it's working. The, the cracks in the armor can't be seen. And the effort to continue to fortify that appearance is one that can keep you from seeing your need for a Savior. Paul said, look, I was super good. I was way better than you. But then I learned how to count. Paul had gained all the world, as it were, of his day. But he was on track to lose his soul, wasn't he? And a blinding light on Damascus Road showed him that in one glorious moment. How about for you? Have you come to that place yet? where you are at least able to say the benefits of my life when I would stand before a holy God will not be that on which I will build. But I will come with open hands and plead like a beggar. Thy mercy, my God, is my plea. Maybe you can boast of a lineage of hard-working West West Virginia coal miners in your background. Or maybe you have four generations of Ivy League scholars you can point back to. Maybe you can boast that your forebears were the first to cross the plains in a covered wagon. And that's of particular pride to you. Or maybe they were marginalized immigrants who labored at the worst jobs because they could find no others. Or maybe they were even racial minorities who were persecuted. Good! Be 
be proud and grateful and, and humble as you think back on your heritage. Good, absolutely. But God has no grandchildren. And every soul must come to the Lord for himself. Every soul must be as Paul and learn to count and say, I don't stand on the shoulders of what my forebears have accomplished or, or how good the people were who went before me or I was born into a Christian family or any of that. Thy mercy, my God, is the theme of my song, the joy of my heart and the boast of my soul. That's all that I have. Whatever things were gained to me, verse 7, those things <laughs> I learned to count, Paul says. I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. If you don't yet know Christ, then we would pray this morning that you would learn to count. Well, before we who know the Lord begin to think too highly of ourselves, what if we already know Christ this morning? Yet we still also need to learn how to count. Because our gains can not only keep us from salvation or be an obstacle, our gains can also keep us from the very thing that Paul is speaking to these Christians in Philippi for them to be able to experience. What is that? Rejoice in the Lord. And one of the things that may stand in the way of your and my rejoicing in the Lord is whatever benefits or accomplishments I may find. Your toys and your treasures and your trinkets and your talents, your rewards or your rank, your skills or your successes, these may be your main adversary to rejoicing in the Lord. These will compete for your allegiance and mine before God. And there's a sense in which it's not a fair fight because it's a lot easier to go based on what I can see than upon what I can't. Unless the Lord gives us the eyes of faith and an eternal perspective. In the fight for your joy in Christ, these things can become adversaries. Now, I want to round out the full picture of this. Because it's important to under, understand when to count gains as losses. Because we are also given in other places in Scripture the exhortation to, to rejoice in the gifts of God. It's just that the gifts are not the end in themselves. So you have to know when you are able to rejoice in the Lord because of a gift and when you rejoice in the gift in exception to the Lord. And that's something the Spirit of God is big enough to lead you and me in being able to do. He who has Christ and treasures Christ, all things are his, Paul says. All things are yours, Paul writes. All the promises of God are yes in him. By the way, if you go and you read that passage where it says all things are yours, uh, it, by the way, not only mentions good things, it also mentions some things like death. <laughs> because even the suffering and the trials and the hardships, even these are ours in Christ because they push us towards him, which is where we rejoice. So the good, the drawing, the taste of eternity that makes me rejoice in the Lord. Thank you for this gift, Lord, because it's just a tiny taste. This, this sweetness that I feel, this thankfulness, God, is just a taste of what it will be like to be with you for all eternity. And this hardship, this bitterness, this pill, 
this poison, this injustice, this pain, Lord God, yet it pushes me towards you that I rejoice in nothing else but you. And so all things are yours to rejoice in the Lord, aren't they? Augustine said this, O Lord, he loves thee too little, who loves anything together with thee, which he loves not for thy sake. You can love anything and everything of the world. I know 1 John says don't love the world. But you can love what is given to you in the world so long as you love it for Christ's sake. And it draws you closer to him. Well, important clarification I just wanted to briefly touch on there this morning. The right kind of confidence is when we stand before God and we say, I can't be saved on my own, and I won't find joy on my own. And sometimes these things that I spend a lot of my time working for, they end up turning back on me and kill me. I will count them, Lord, as adversaries insofar as they keep me from you. Lord, don't let me turn from you. Second, the right kind of confidence, that's what it means to rejoice in the Lord. How do we pursue it? By counting sometimes our gains as losses. Second, to rejoice in the Lord means to know Christ is of surpassing greatness. What does it mean to rejoice in the Lord? It means to know that Christ is of surpassing greatness. And how do we pursue it? We pursue that joy in the Lord by counting Him as all gain, Paul says. Verse 8, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Um, First thing you need to know is that uh, the opening of verse 8 has no less than five adversative particles in it, okay? Sorry, grammar stuff. I got all jazzed about this. Paul is like, yes, but also, and then, instead of, let me tell you, moreover, here's the new thing, okay? That's sort of how he starts verse 8. I had all this stuff, and it might have been gain for me, but it was keeping me from life, and it was keeping me for joy, from joy. And he says, more than all of that, even instead, I count all things to be lost now. <laughs> Compared to knowing Christ, I count all things now. This is the way I count now. I count all things like rubbish compared to knowing him. The word for rubbish um, is used in certain contexts uh, for spoiled food. It's used for garbage. It's used for animal dung. It's used for feces. This is about as close as the the scripture is going to get to cussing. Muck is a good word here. I consider everything else just garbage, Paul says. Why? Not because there aren't good gifts in this life, uh, the tenderness of a friend who understands you, the, the, the sweetness of the, uh, the breathing of a newborn child resting on your chest, the beauty of a sunrise on a spring morning, and on and on and on. Not because there's not good 
not because there's not glimpses of God's glory in the universe, but because those things can't even compare. Those things really are just the tiniest glimpse of all that God is. And moreover, here in context, Paul is speaking out about the good of himself. And, and yes, humans can accomplish good things, relatively speaking. But all trust in oneself has, has nowhere to go in standing before a holy God. Paul, at this point in verse 8, by uh, piling up all of these little contrastive uh, little words... He says, I have rejected these things. I have renounced these things. He said, I literally did. I literally did trust in those things. If you ask me if I thought I was going to go to heaven, I could give you the list. I'm quite certain I'm going to heaven. Let me give you the 49 reasons why. In fact, the Pharisees counted up 613 commands in the Mosaic Code, right? He said, we keep all of them. And then on top of it, we build a fence around the law so that we can't even get close to breaking the 613. So we got, I don't know, several hundred more beyond. And I'm keeping all of them. He says, I have rejected that. It is now distasteful to Paul to stand before God and say, can I tell you why I'm here? Let me tell you why you're so glad that you'll have me for all eternity. It is distasteful to the believer, isn't it? To live as sufficient and independent and standing on one's own merit. It is now distasteful for the true Christian to even have the thought of coming to this God that now that we've met him, and we know we've just have a taste, we're like, I, I, I can't even conceptualize of coming before him and going, look at how good I am, Lord. It's distasteful to us, and that's what he says. I count all things to be lost. Catch this here. He doesn't say, I don't merely count those as things I don't count on. He says, no, I count them as a problem. He says, I don't move them from the positive category of the stuff I've got in the moral bank, and I just take them out and go, ah, I don't even look at that. He says, no, I put, them, I put them in the liability column. These things can stand in my way. That's what he's doing here, at least in Philippians 3. This is, this is what real repentance looks like. This is the change of mind. It, it, it's an act of the will to, to call out certain things. And, 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 and it happens once and for all when we come to that first realization, when we come to the Lord, of how, Lord, I'm, I'm totally doing this wrong. And it's a super paradigm shift. But then we spend the rest of our lives continuing to grow in that. And, and continually repenting and accounting things in a new way. And, and reckoning also, here's the good news, things that we saw before as loss and destruction now as gateways to life. When, when the Lord thundered from heaven um, with Saul on Damascus Road, he was not coming to reward him. He's not coming to pat him on the back and affirm his way of thinking up to this point. He was coming to change everything, and it worked. He had Paul's attention, and that's what he's referring to here. Damascus Road was a decisive experience for Paul. It's the moment his entire system got wrecked. It got turned upside down, and now for the rest of his life, he says, I don't do it perfectly, but now I'm, I'm learning to give up all these gains and 
to receive what I could never have gained otherwise. Christ, peace, union with him in his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, and now his presence forever with his father. I could never have accomplished that. Oh, I'm so glad to give it all up for this and the righteousness of God that goes with it. Rosaria Butterfield is uh, one I've uh, spoken of before. She was the tenured Syracuse professor, lesbian social activist, who turned to become a follower of Christ just a matter of a handful of years ago. She's written a couple of books. After two years of uh, relationship with a, uh, a Christian couple who, uh, who had loved her and read the Bible to her, she had a degree in, uh, uh, she had a literary degree, um, and uh, it was an advanced degree, so she was an extremely voracious reader. Uh, I think she accounts that in her first year of um, friendship with this couple, um, they read through the Bible once, and then in the second year, she read through it like three times. They, they read with her, they loved her, they answered her questions for two years. And then she says this, and then one ordinary day, I came to Jesus. I was there in church, she had been attending for a good while. There was no altar call, there was no fanfare, there was no manipulation. Uh, we were singing from Psalm 119, how boring is that? After I sang the words... The walls came crashing down. The fog burned away. The whole Bible, each jot and tittle, was now my open highway to a holy God. My hands let go of the wheel of self-invention. I came to Jesus alone, empty-handed and needy. I had no dignity upon which to stand. As an advocate for peace and social justice, I thought that I was on the side of kindness and integrity and care. It was thus a, crush, a crushing revelation to discover that it was Jesus himself that I had been persecuting the whole time. Not just some historical figure named Jesus, but my Jesus, my prophet, my priest, my king, my savior, my redeemer, my friend, that Jesus. The believer finds that all else is rubbish when she finds Jesus beautiful. My Jesus, I've mistreated. And I imagine Rosaria Butterfield in that day would say, I couldn't believe I was thinking the words, my Jesus, I've come to believe, lo and behold. This is my Jesus whom I love. And he is more beautiful than anything else I have ever clung to. And he redefines everything about who I am. To know Christ is of surpassing greatness. So brother and sister, for you and for me, it is to count him as all gain. No matter what the world throws at you, no matter what circumstances I'm struggling with this week or you're struggling with, no matter how bad you blow it, Christ is all gain. And may in such a moment as that, may you and may I realize it all the more. He is surpassing greatness. He is beauty. 
and he draws us to him. Third and finally, what does it mean to rejoice in the Lord and how do we pursue it? It means that to be found in Christ is your safety and refuge. To be found in Christ is your safety and refuge. So the way we pursue it is to go to him as our only righteousness, to count him as our only righteousness. End of verse 8 and into 9. I count all these but rubbish, Paul says at the end of 8. I count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. And that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that's derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Notice the trade here. My righteousness that came from the law and all of my keeping for something else. The righteousness that came from God through faith in Christ. This is that alien righteousness that the reformers speak of. There's only one righteousness that will avail before a righteous God. It's a righteousness that comes from outside of us and is imputed to us by faith. Calvin said it this way. We must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separate from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and is of no value for us. Therefore, to share with us all that he has from the Father, he has to come and dwell within us. So I count them all but rubbish so that I may gain Christ, Paul says, and might be found in him. Listen, it it was not that Paul was acting out of duty after that experience on Damascus Road. It was his delight to cast away his self-righteousness. Are you kidding me? He's beautiful. I would give up everything that I've accomplished to have him. He's most desirable. And to be found in him, that is the place of my gain, my safety, my refuge. Paul would say, I got a bargain. I don't care how many years I was faithful and how many laws I kept and I ate only certain foods and I washed my hands the right ways and, you know, dripped the water off my elbows. I'm thinking of, you know, good surgeons. I don't know how the Jews did it. You get the point. I did all that little tiny stuff. But I, I, I counted all as nothing for him. For knowing Christ was surpassingly great. Paul now knows God as his prodigal father. You're like, wait, I think the, I think the thing is called the prodigal son. Is that what it's called? Right. As others before me have pointed out. Um, prodigal means wasteful, prodigious, lavish. Uh, I think it's an insightful thing to say, no, the parable is not really about the pro- prodigious son. It's really a story about the prodigious father, the wastefully lavish. Paul now knew God as prodigal father, as lavish God. He had never known him like that before, had he? But now he did. He knew the son now as generous savior, as as the giver of all good gifts by mercy alone and by grace indeed, as as the tender Shepherd who keeps his little sheep and makes dear the children of his love. 
Oh, no, Paul wasn't acting out of duty. <laughs> Paul was acting for his deepest joy. It was the most selfish thing he ever did to count everything else as loss for the sake of being found in Christ. That is the greatest gain I could ever have for all eternity and every day from here until then, he says. And the believer knows Christ as more satisfying than any accomplishments, any victory, or the sound of any applause ringing in his ears. He knows Christ as sweeter. Christ is now, believer, lovelier to you than all the beauties of all of nature combined. He's sweeter to you than, than the highest and richest music. For those of you who love that sort of fare, he is richer to you than all that the palate savors, more tender than the, com than the comfort of a mother or an infant. Christ is better to you than all medals, all diplomas, all anniversaries, all offspring, and all reputation. To be found in him, that is great gain. Rejoice in the Lord. Learn how to count. Let's stand and pray. Gracious God, our Father, we praise you that you take our self-made paradigms and you turn them upside down by revealing to us eternal economies, by revealing to us where the real richness lies in your Son. Lord, this week we, we resolve ourselves to seek your face as precious above all and over all, through all, and even, Lord, in spite of all, we will seek your face, for you are our richness. Lord, help us to count this week. Um, thank you, Lord, that your richness and nearness is enough for brothers and sisters in Nashville, Tennessee today, in the jungles of Peru, in the communities, in Via Margarita, in Bolivia, in places of drought and famine, ministering for the sake of the gospel in the outer regions of Ethiopia, that you are sweet and you are enough for every one of these. And so, Lord, we will confess so also for us. We thank you and we praise you, Lord, in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen. God bless.